0: Well, good morning, brothers. The uh, plan for this time is very informal. So at any point, raise your hand, speak up. This could Be this like, uh, like we're in a, a small group setting. This isn't a formal one-way lecture here. Um, this topic is on politics, conscience, the church, political theory. And uh, I don't know all of your church situations, but if it's anywhere close to mine, this has been a powder keg for the past five years or so, and it feels like the powder's getting drier by the day, and this and uh how do we think about these matters so that that 's the topic on the table uh, that i 'd like to to discuss. Um, let me just back up a little bit uh, my name's andy naelli uh, my, my wife, Jenny, and I have been married for almost twenty years. We have four daughters, ages fifteen, twelve, eleven, and six I live in minneapolis i 'm one of the pastors of the North church that used to be. Uh, one of the campuses of Bethlehem Baptist Church, which was one mega church and three campuses. In February of this year, we became independent, so all three campuses are independent. Yes, yes. <laughs> when I came to Bethlehem 10-plus years ago, I, I came on the condition that this wouldn't stay this way. Uh, I, and I teach ecclesiology in the seminary, so they've been hearing it for 10 years. Uh, it's much better now. Um, but uh, we've been through some difficult times. George Floyd's death happened in our backyard, and uh, we had uh, pastors and some professors and some students who, uh, I would say, if not woke, were friendly to that position. And it, it almost split our church. Uh, so I've just been through this. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, but even more recently, um, we had another little divide. Maybe you, you heard about this. Um, our president of our school, so Bethlehem College and Seminary, is a little church-based school. Uh, the president, Joe Rigney, uh, resigned earlier this year regarding political theology. Did you guys hear any about this a little bit? So the the gist is his his view on political theology, according to our board, is out of step with what a president should believe. Uh, it was too in line with the magisterial reformers and not sufficiently Baptist in its view of the separation of church and state. That's the short version. Happy to say a lot more. I, I just mentioned that to, t- to say... Um, I think the people in our churches these days are more uh, attuned to these matters, and I think we need to know more about them so we can shepherd them well. So I'd like to start this morning with about a uh, 20-minute survey of something I've been working on all summer. It's not published yet. I probably will wait a couple months at least before I publish it. this article, Uh, but here's what's behind it. I'm just trying to make sense of the political theology landscape uh, what, so I'm a systematic thinker. I teach systematic theology. I like to know the views and what, what are the, the differences and similarities. And, and if you can put them on a spectrum, uh, what goes over here and what goes over here and, and where does this view fit? That's just how my mind works. And I, I've done that for a lot of other issues. And this has been by far the hardest one to work with. It's, it's like trying to lasso a tornado. Um, understanding what political theology is and all the different views of it. So I'm going to present to you what, uh, my provisional working hypothesis of seven views and then propose to you at the end uh, uh, some reflections, one of them saying what I think is a, a, a lane that even pastors can work with and differ on. Um, and this is challenging because to, to talk about this well means you have to be really uh, proficient in at least four areas. Exegesis, of the scriptures, and theology, how do you put it all together, and political theory, and history. <laughs> it's like, who is an expert in all four of those? Um, so I'm, I'm more the first two, and I've, I'm more like a, a hobbyist for the, the latter two. So I'm interested, and I'm always reading on it, and I'm thinking about it, but I'm not formally trained in that. Uh, I spent the summer as a fellow with American Reformer, which is a political organization, um, and they paid me to just research and write on this, and I was with a group of about seven or eight other guys, none of them who were exegetes and theologians, they're all political theorists and historians, so I spent the summer with them, there's there's a Hillsdale graduate over there, one of these guys is a fifth year PhD student at Hillsdale, and he he quotes Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas, like I quote Paul, like it's right there, and everything about the American founding, so I was just hanging around these guys all summer, uh, and and reading and reading and reading, and I'm going to show you in about 20 minutes, it's a survey of what I found. So I think this is really interesting, and it's going to connect to the, the broader issues of politics and such. And I just this year hit reading glasses age. I'm, a, I'm with you guys. Okay, so I'm going to try to connect to this, this mirror, uh, the screen behind me here. Let's see if this works. Are we in? It's asking me for a, a password. I'm going to try it again. Screen mirror, Israel's Mac Mini. He didn't want to tell me his password. I don't think anything's happening. You're right. Try that. This works when I preached yesterday. So while he's doing that, I'll, I'll riff over here. Um, I'm going to start by defining three terms. What's the password? Ignore the man behind the curtain. All right. So uh, define three terms, politics, religion, and political theology. So you've got to be clear on what politics and religion are to define political theology because I think political theology is how politics and religion relate to each other. Uh, and then I'm going to propose... we in? No? no. Um, that's okay. This, if you can figure it out, it'd be great, because I've got a whole bunch of uh, visual to show them. So uh, let me just listen here. Religion, I would define this way, an organized system of beliefs that answers ultimate questions and commends certain actions or behaviors based on the answers to those questions. So it's about ultimate reality, and I define it that way because I think that secularism is, in a sense, a religion. It's not a formal, organized religion like, like a Christian church would be, but in a sense, it's a religion. It's, so I'm, I'm treating it that way. So that's religion. Politics is the science and art of governing men, to praf- paraphrase Aristotle. You want to take another shot of this? Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, this is fine. So, want to hit screen mirror? Yep. All right. And... Let's see... So uh, political theology is this, how do how do religion and um, and politics relate to each other? Politics is the art and science of governing men. And I'm thinking of that pr- primarily in the area of civil government. Uh, so I'm referring to, uh, to religion and politics. I'm thinking religion, organized or not, and civil government. Okay, so um, I'm going to jump right in here. And if they figure this out, great. If not... Do you want me to switch to my iPad? Do you think that would would show better? Because that worked yesterday? Let's see here.. Um, are we connected there? So, if you get this showing, it seems like that'll work. Let me just pull up. What's going on now? So, we're connected. I'm going to keep going. Okay. It's worked perfectly yesterday, so we, we figured it would work again today. Um, now, I'm going to show you or tell you seven views on political theology, and uh, hopefully, this will make some sense. So, view one I have a, uh, two circles. Big one is government, and underneath it is a little one that's religion. Oh, you can see it now. All right. And I would describe this as the, the secular government suppresses religion. Can you see that okay? Is it big enough for you in the back? Okay. So here's how I describe the position. The government and religion should be totally separate in the sense that the government should be secular because God does not exist. So the government shouldn't merely separate from religion, but should suppress religion. Historic example, Karl Marx. Modern example, former Soviet Union. So that's Marxist-Leninist atheism or today North Korea, which is officially an atheist government, or I'd even include secular progressivism. Now, on this spectrum, it's moving from views that separate religion and politics or government to views that combine them. So that's, that's where we're moving on the spectrum. For view one, the government protects itself from being contaminated by religion. For view two, it's the opposite. Religion protects itself from being contaminated by the government. So that's a guy saying, keep away, all right? So view two, religion must radically separate from the government. There's this big wall between them, and uh, here's how I describe this view. The government and religion should be totally separate in the sense that they are distinct spheres that must not overlap because the government is worldly. So individual Christians must separate from the government by not wielding the sword as combatants or as magistrates, because to do so would be to cooperate with sinful institutions. Historic example is the Anabaptists. Modern example, traditional Mennonites. Stanley Hauerwas, Greg Boyd. Are you guys tracking with me so far? What's the title of this one? Religion must radically separate from the government. Think Anabaptists. Good question. All right. We good? So they're they're essentially extremes of separation. That, that the government and religion should be separate. The first view is uh, religion's bad. The second view is government's bad. All right? All right, so they see hostility between them. View three envisions neutrality with no intermingling. So here's how I depict it. The government must be religiously neutral. So there's still a wall, but the, the, the guy who's saying keep away is on the other side of the wall this time. He's saying the government needs to keep away from a particular religion. So here's how I describe this view. The government and religion should be separate in the sense that the government should be religiously neutral and a particular religion should not influence the government. So the government may be religiously neutral in one of two ways. One is by promoting no religion, that is a secularism that doesn't necessarily deny God's existence but wants to keep the peace between opposing religions. Or two is by promoting a civil religion, A civil religion is the appropriation of religion by politics for its own purposes. Either way, the public square should be religiously neutral. Religious people should publicly argue based on natural law and not their particular religion. Historic examples are classical liberalism, like John Locke, which he emphasizes a free market, and to some degree, uh, I think America had a Protestant civil religion until the 50s. And then another view within this historic uh, framework is libertarianism, which emphasizes individual autonomy, and also includes progressive liberalism, which emphasizes the welfare state and freedom from traditional sexual ethics. Modern examples, John Rawls, who emphasizes religious neutrality in the government, Reform Two Kingdoms, which emphasizes political neutrality in the church. At least some forms of re- Reform Two Kingdoms, not all. Uh, some would be in the next few. I was just corresponding this week, this last week with David Van Drunen, and he insisted he would be in view four, not view three. And he's uh, one version of Reformed Two Kingdoms. All right, so for view four, in contrast to view three, the public square is not religiously neutral. So here's how I'd summarize it. The government doesn't promote only one particular religion, yet religion may influence the government within limited parameters. So it's that arrow underneath it says influence, but don't institutionalize. Um, another verb that you might hear is Establish. Uh, The government should not establish a religion uh, uh, in any way. So here's the position. The government and the church, and this is a little bit longer because this is where most people in our circles would identify, so I'm trying to get it just right. The government and the church are separate in this sense. They have distinct God-authorized jurisdictions. God authorizes the government to wield the sword, which a government may justly do against an individual Christian who has broken the law. And God authorizes the church to exercise the keys, which a church may rightly do by refusing to affirm that an individual governmental authority is a Christian. The government should not exclusively promote a particular religion. Here's an example. The government recognizes religious freedom and does not institute a state church or spread doctrine that is explicitly Christian. So that's, the government should not exclusively promote a particular religion and The government should not restrict the spread of false religious beliefs. For example, uh, the government should not... um, Excuse me. I'm saying this the wrong way. The government may allow a mosque to be built in the town square, and it may not forbid it. All right? However, religion may influence the government. An individual governmental authority, like the United uh, United States senator, may argue for political positions based on religion... And the government may adopt that position, but the government can't adopt it on the basis of religion. The public square can't be religiously neutral. It's a religious battleground. For Christians, the church's mission is to make disciples. Individual Christians should significantly influence the government, and the government should not institutionalize Christianity. For example, the government shouldn't put the Apostles' Creed in the Constitution. Okay, that was the most... Views 4 and 5, I say the most to explain them. Here's some historic examples of this view. Most Baptists, uh, like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, Isaac Backus, uh English nonconformists and separatists, such as Congregationalists and Quakers. And modern examples include Wayne Grudem, Jonathan Lehman, John Piper, Andrew Walker, David Drunnan, who's not Baptist, and Robert George, who's Catholic. Pause right there. Did that make sense to you? You tracking with this? Yeah. You're writing the whole thing? Uh, 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 ah, ah, th- that, okay. <laughs> so the government does not only, does not promote only one particular religion, yet religion may influence the government within limited per- parameters. All right. So for view uh, number five, the next one, religion should not merely influence the government, but should actually identify as a Christian government. So this is, we're getting close to what, I'm a. I'm not going to parse out all the ways people, uh, what people mean by the the term Christian nationalism, but some of those who hold that view would be in view five. So here's view five. The government and religion overlap. Here's how I'd state this. The government and the Christian church are two God-ordained institutions that have distinct and overlapping God-authorized jurisdictions and they should work together under God's ultimate authority. For Christians, the church's mission is to make disciples of all nations. Individual Christians should significantly influence the government, and, this is a distinction, the government may institutionalize Christianity to some degree, for example, by putting God in the Constitution and by having a religious test for office. The government should identify as a Christian government in the sense that the laws and customs it promotes Derive from the ultimate authority of God The governing authorities should know That they are accountable to God For how they rule And it's fitting for the government To exhort citizens to fear the living God The government should pursue justice By promoting the natural law Which the Ten Commandments summarize As much as prudently possible The government should Along with the church and society Help create cultural conditions Conducive for conversion And for the common good While the government should promote and to some degree enforce a just social order based on a right understanding of God and man, for example, promote marriage and the family, demote no-fault divorce, adultery, homosexuality, transgenderism, and pornography, Uh, the government should not force citizens to follow Christianity, since only the spirit's regeneration produces a heart change. The church's weapon is not the sword, but instead the word, water, bread, and wine. And this model is not feasible long-term if many of the Christians are not... Many of the citizens are not genuine Christians. Historic examples, magisterial reformers like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Hooker, Uh, the Reformed Scholastics, Church of England, John Gill, who's Baptist, American Puritans like Winthrop, Bradford, Cotton, Matter, Jonathan Edwards, and the basic approach in America at its founding at the state level, not the federal level. Modern examples include Brad Littlejohn, Doug Wilson, Joe Rigney, Daniel Strand, and many others. Okay, pause right there. Did that one make sense? Will? Yeah, so I don't think so. Those are going to be views six and seven. Yeah. Good, very good question. You notice how I say religion there, but all I'm talking about is Christianity. It's a very, it's a very Christian view. Other questions? Good. All right, so let's, let's move on. Um, for view five, the government enforces a particular ethic that's tied to a religion. For view six, the government enforces the religion itself. So say it like this. Religion governs the government, and the government enforces religion. So the big circle's religion, the little circle's government. So here's how i describe this. A particular religion governs the government. Some call this view the doctrine of the two swords, in which the sword of religion trumps the sword of the government. So for medieval Roman Catholics, both swords belong to the Pope, and the Pope directly wields a spiritual sword and indirectly wields a temporal sword by commanding governmental authorities. So God ordains a government... To ensure peace in society, which includes to some extent governing church assemblies, ensuring that the church maintains orthodoxy, and punishing people who refuse to comply. The magistrate might say, the Pope is telling me that he's a heretic, so the government must punish him. Historic example, the theocracy of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, Constantine, and the two-swords view of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. I think a modern view, this is where I need to give more thought, would be not modern-day general equity theonomy like Doug Wilson holds, but the 80s and 90s uh, Rush Dooney, Gary North, uh, Greg Bonson view of theonomy. It's called Christian Reconstructionism. That is, reconstruct America as a Christian republic by rebuilding it on the foundation of the Mosaic Law. If you take moral-civil-ceremonial, it'd be the moral and the civil, not the ceremonial. All right? I'll pause right there. Yeah? What is the difference between theism and theocracy? Uh, well, it depends how you define theocracy. In one sense... Everyone is theocratic, as all Christians are. Like, I don't know a Christian who goes, yeah, I hate God's law. Um, and the, the question is, who is the theos? Who's, who's, the, who's the God? The God is the backstop, the final court of appeal. Every society has one. In our society, it's the demos, it's the people, and the Constitution. So it's a democratic republic. Um, others say it should be God. Um, so, and then for those who say that, there are lots of, 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 of versions of what that might look like. He's our Hillsdale grad. All right. Uh, view six is religion over government. View seven is government over religion. This is the last one. The government governs and enforces religion. So here the big circle is government, little one's religion. Uh, position is the government governs religion with, with a state church and forces citizens to follow or at least not oppose a particular religion. Historic examples, ancient Egypt when Pharaoh was oppressing God's people before the Exodus, Roman emperor worship and Islam, when it's a nation's dominant religion. Modern examples, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Okay, that's my attempt to do a spectrum. I'm going to share some concluding reflections here, but let me just pause right there. Do you understand how, what I have proposed, and does that make sense to you? Do you find that helpful? Uh, I've, I've shared this with about 50 to 75 friends who know more about this than I do, and all but about three to five of them found it helpful. Some of them who didn't find it helpful... Are really smart guys, and it's making me hesitate to publish it because I'm like, I don't want to, I, I just got to make sure I, I've thought through all the angles. But how did it land on you? Any questions or comments on that so far? Is it a spectrum or a horseshoe? Because this one seems a lot like Yeah, hang on. Actually, I've got a reflection on that in just a second. It's one of my reflections is that views one and six are actually more like each other than the others. So, yeah, good. Come, I saw, someone else is about to say something. Yes, you could. All right, let me share some reflections, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pivot a little bit. Um, one, uh, I have seven reflections. One, my taxonomy is describing rather than evaluating. You don't know what I believe yet. So that, that, I'm just trying to, do we rightly understand? And that's really a good um, practice, is before you start evaluating, can you articulate what the views are accurately and what you're disagreeing with? It's, it's very frustrating when somebody is writing an article critiquing something, and you think, they don't even understand what they're critiquing, right? That's frustrating. So that's my attempt to do this, so I want to do it accurately. Second reflection, uh, trying to systematize the various views on political theology is really challenging, but that shouldn't pre- prevent us from trying. Um, you guys remember uh, D.A. Carson? I know I have students today in seminary who don't remember this guy, because uh, he, he's not modern day, like, podcasting and popular like he used to be. Um, He wrote a book, he wrote three books in the 90s, one called The Gagging of God and Postmodernism, and in the early 2000s, uh, Christ and Culture Revisited and The Intolerance of Tolerance. And those were way outside his lane as a New Testament scholar, but they were really helpful. Um, Modern-day example, this is Carl Truman, whose formal training is in the Reformation, so he's a Luther scholar, and within the last five years, he's branched out and studied... Uh, the the history of the modern self and how that relates to critical theory and he's done so I think brilliantly and helpfully so all I have to say is it really bothers me when someone says stay in your lane if you know how to read and think you should be able to apply those skills to other things so that's what I'm trying to do but there's a danger there because you could do it in a way that lacks sufficient nuance and shows you don't know what you're talking about so I'm I'm venturing into these waters with some trepidation but I think it can be done all right, uh, third, there's a lot more to say. In other words, uh, you could ask what does each of these seven views presuppose about reality? Uh, what is each view's political philosophy? How does each view argue exegetically and theologically? For example, uh, if you look at Romans uh, 13, it uses the word good and evil, uh, right and wrong. What do those refer to? And some people make very nuanced views that, well, the good is specifically the good of the second table of the Ten Commandments and not the first. And others will say, how can you make that distinction? The the Bible doesn't just separate the tables like that. Uh, And uh, the good, actually later in Romans 13, uh, he lists some of the Ten Commandments, and then he says, and any other commandment. I think it's Romans 13, around verses 10 and 11, or any other commandment. Um, So there's just a lot of questions exegetically to think through. Fourth reflection. My taxonomy may mislead you to think that the various views on the spectrum are distinct and neat and tidy ways and I could complicate it way further. So it's more like a sliding scale with various positions within each view. Um, For example, for view five, uh, I mentioned Brad Littlejohn and Doug Wilson. So Brad Littlejohn is an Anglican who would prefer to have uh, a state church. Doug Wilson argues for something called mere Christianity, which would be opposed to a state church. But just like the Apostles' Creed would be the the, the general doctrine. Nothing nothing more specific than that. And, And Two people who share the same political theology can reach similar conclusions, but for very different reasons. And what is small and local can look different when it's large and national. Think like an Amish community, gone national. Oh, then you're looking at like view five or six. (laughs) So that can complicate it. And then different approaches to political theology can be more pragmatic or prudential in particular contexts. I don't know what our brother is going to say about the book of Revelation. But if you're seeped in the book of Revelation, you're thinking about the church being persecuted. And sometimes Christians can get the idea that that's the ideal place for Christians to be, is to be persecuted. And if you're not being persecuted, there's something wrong with you, if, if, in the book of Revelation sense. And you could counter that and say, well, First Timothy 2 says we're supposed to pray for peace, that the gospel may go forth. That's different than what the, the church in Revelation is experiencing. So, so I think we can romanticize being persecuted as like the ideal Christian church, but we shouldn't run from it. All I'll say is uh, the the culture you're in, whether you're being persecuted or not, affects how you think about these things. If I'm a Christian in China right now, I'm not even really having this discussion. Uh, I'm just trying to survive and be faithful. If I'm in a a situation where the Christians could be the majority of the citizens and they have some kind of responsibility to steward, uh, this discussion becomes a lot more significant. And that's been the history of our country here. That's why we talk about it so much. Uh, Further, this is to your question over there. The outermost poles of the spectrum, views one and seven, have more in common with each other than the middle views because they're both totalitarian either atheistically or religiously. Uh, six, my spectrum is based on the single main issue of how religion and the government relate but there are other factors that compLexify it. So if, if, if what I have is a horizontal axis from how close religion and the government relate to each other, you could add a vertical axis about your disposition toward the regime. Are you pro-regime, or do you favor incremental change? And I could, I could complicate it even further by uh, asking, how does Christ relate to culture? And there, there's an article that Kevin DeYoung wrote for World Opinions a while back. Um, this is in 2022. Uh, and he presented four views on the ways that Christians relate Christianity and politics. He's riffing on, on Niebuhr's Christ and culture categories. He has Christianity against politics, and I think John Piper illustrates that view, which is a very prophetic denunciation of both political parties, pox of both your houses. Then uh, Christianity above politics, and I think that's uh, a Tim Keller approach, which is kind of like, you know, you've got this view and this view, and then, well, Christianity's neither of those. It's kind of like this, and it's the best of both of them. And then there's Christianity as politics, and Doug Wilson might illustrate this in his all of Christ for all of life approach. And then Christianity... Under politics. And I think, I think Hillsdale il- illustrates that, that approach. All I'll say is that complicates it even further. All right, I'm giving you seven reflections. This is number five. Almost done. What seemed to be a neutral public square is now an increasingly polarized battleground. I think that's why we're hearing more about this now. Um, why weren't people talking about these matters with as much heat 50 years ago? Here's my theory. Is it, I'm going to use the metaphor of a car with gas in it. If we're, our society is a car and, and we're running on gas, um, if, if the citizenry is a moral people that, that believe basic Christianity and there's a cultural Christianity that is permeating the society like the East, that, that's gas in the car. When that goes away, you've run out of gas. And then you're asking, so is classical liberalism the answer? Is that the best we've got? So we've been a, a society that's held to classical liberalism, but there's also been a cultural Christianity attached to it. Now that that's gone away, more and more Christians are asking, what good is classical liberalism? It has people defending drag queen story hour. Is that what we want? Is that the pinnacle of, of good civil government? Is the blessings of the liberty of drag queen story hour? Uh, so that that's leading people to think, maybe we should go back to the magisterial reformers and they, they have something to teach us. Uh, so th- that's my theory of why this is becoming such a contentious issue. More and more Christians are, are questioning the, the foundations of classical liberalism. Six, Christians should be aware of prematurely separating from each other based on different political theologies. Okay, so my theory is that in the spectrum views, three, four, and five, or at least versions of them, can be a big lane uh, on which fellow pastors and professors uh, can disagree and still function together. It depends how you hold your view. You could hold it in a very schismatic way and dogmatic way, but if you you could hold it in a charitable way, I think they can get along. What I, this is just my personal opinion, I I am uh, afraid that Christians will too sharply separate over these matters now at a moment in our context where Christians are becoming an increasing minority and now more than ever we need to band together to oppose obvious evils like abortion and transgender mutilation, et cetera, et cetera, not further splinter. So it's really a debate, hypothetically, about what we would do if Christians are the majority of the citizens. And we're actually going the other way on the scale. So it seems like the worst time to splinter. Just, just my opinion. And then a final reflection, number seven, no civil government will be flawless until King Jesus returns. So as we, we try to do what's best, I don't want to give the impression that we're expecting utopia now, prior to the Lord's return. Okay, I just covered a lot of material really quick. I have more to talk about before I pivot, but let me just pause there. Questions, comments, reflections on that survey of of different views on political theology? Yep. You mentioned classical politicalism. Yep, that's in view three. Yeah, let me use my. Phrasing up here, view. Hang on here. So, the government and religion should be separate in the sense that the government should be religiously neutral and a particular religion should not influence the government. So, the idea is um, it's not opposed to religion, but it's not going to privilege any religion at all. Um, and there's a kind of civil religion that's okay. Think after 9 11. Uh, how there was a religious service that I would call blasphemous, but it was you know, there was prayer involved and it involved Muslims and so-called Christians and real Christians, and that's a civil religion. Uh, that's a that's a fruit of classical liberalism, and the and really the person who engineered that is John Locke. So that's com- that can work. So I have friends who agree with my theology, and they think that as a political theology, that's most prudent, because. My view of, or our view of, of total depravity is such that I don't want a government with more power. I, yeah, they could do a lot of good, but the more power you give the government to do good, they can do a lot of evil. And this, world history is a story of the government abusing that power. So some want to say, well, let's just give the government as little power as possible. And that, that's, that's how that view would look at it. Right here. Oh no, no, that's me. That's just the seven reflections are just me. Yeah. Other questions or comments on this? There's a In Christ and Culture Revisited by Don Carson, he has a, a line you know, where someone says, in Islam, we, our holy books, our, holy, our teachings, don't tell us what to do when we're a minority. And in Christianity, it doesn't tell you what to do when you're in the majority. <laughs> There's probably something to that. Uh, uh, where, okay, when you're in that other situation, uh, you don't have as many passages you can go to to tell you exactly what to do. It takes a lot of prudential reasoning. Other, other reflections or, or questions? Yeah. Uh, in presenting these seven views, are you presenting them as in, like, here are the viewpoints as of now and history behind us? I was trying to think historically. I'm trying to think as wide an so angle as I can. So you're not saying, okay, these are the seven viewpoints. Like, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is, in the future, could there be an eighth that would come up, or is this a comprehensive view? I can't predict that, man. But I'm just trying to make sense of what's happened and what's happening. What's happening. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I have historic examples and modern examples. I don't know, there could be variations. Yeah, good question. All right, anything else? Okay, I'm gonna pivot uh, to talking about conscience. So I had this on my computer. Let me see if I've got it on here. I think I may have put it on here. Uh, Let's see, I didn't. Okay, I'm gonna have to use my computer. Uh, In 2019, Jonathan Lehman, a guy with nine marks and I, uh, worked together on a little book and an article on conscience, politics, um, and such things. And uh, I'm looking at an article that came out in early 2020 in Thamelias, so it's free online as a PDF, and the title is Politics, Conscience, and the Church, Why Christians Passionately Disagree with One Another Over Politics, Why They Must Agree to Disagree Over Jagged Line Political Issues, and How. Um, Did any of you, just curious, have any of you seen that article? Few of you? All right, so you're familiar with it. So, what I want to just reflect on, I'll sum- summarize it real briefly, but I, I want to just have some, uh, make, share some reflections on how I might write it differently if I were to rewrite it now, about four years later. Um, I thought that might interest you, because I think things have changed a lot in the last four years. Okay, so our thesis in that article is well, I, I'd say it this way we approach the issue by asking three questions. Uh, here are the three questions. Why do Christians passionately disagree with one another over politics? Second, why must Christians agree to disagree over jagged line political issues? And three, how must Christians who disagree over jagged line political issues agree to disagree? So uh, our, our, our goal behind that is to try to help churches not self-destruct and split over this stuff. We want Christians to be able to hold firm opinions about politics and then discuss politics with one another in a way that's generous, kind, loving, pleasant, humble, uh, and not church-splitting. So that's the goal. I still have that same goal, uh, but I I would just nuance things a little differently. And I'll I'll mention a few of those now. So in that first question, why do Christians passionately disagree with one another over politics? Our, Our first reason we give is that Christians passionately care about justice and believing that their political convictions promote justice. And we define justice, according to the Bible, as making righteous judgments. Today, I would de- define it even more sharply. So I've, I've recently thought about this a lot more. And here's my pocket definition for justice now. Justice is getting what you deserve and giving others what they deserve. I can't find a better definition than that. It's getting what you deserve, giving others what they deserve. So that's how I'd say it now. I think it's it's clearer, more concise. Um, so, so God is just in that he always gives people what they deserve. He's never unfair. He sometimes shows favors, but not unfairly. And we should be just in giving others what they deserve. Uh, Alright, so that's, that's, I'd start there, just defining it a little more sharply. And then we share that governments exist for the purpose of justice. Governments exist for the purpose of justice. And There's a way to to write and talk about uh, justice in society in a way that just sounds like you've got a list of the left's talking points. And I wanted to add something here. There's a a man named Thaddeus Williams. You may not know that name. He wrote a book on social justice with Zondervan several years ago. It's very good. And in 2022, he wrote a World Opinions article. uh, And the title of that article is We just may be on the wrong side of history if it's and his subtitle is the demand for justice in our society leaves out many of the oppressed and in that article he 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 gives an example of four issues that christians should care about um, justice in society and these are the ones that don't make any of the talking points on the left and these are the ones i think we could preach on so one is abortion uh, our, our pursuit of justice should include these tiny humans exterminated because larger humans consider them inconvenient, genetically inferior, or too female. So that one is what I'd call a straight line issue. You go right from do not murder to don't commit abortions. It's just it's a straight line, and that's one that uh, we can just preach with authority and, and have convictions about. I'm so disappointed. I saw yesterday uh, President Trump in an interview saying uh, that DeSantis' six-week abortion ban was terrible, and that he, he should move back to 15 weeks, and he'll compromise with the Democrats, and everybody will like him. Maybe he's want to vomit. Um, all right. Well, I didn't think I was going to talk about that, but this came out there. All right. Um, uh, the second example is pornography and its connection to child porn, human trafficking, rape, domestic violence, impaired brain function, broken relationships, and depression. So I think our pursuit of justice should include the victims of the exploitative pornography industry. And if, so I think in a just society, that would include penalizing, in some way, pornography. That sounds crazy to classical liberals, especially to libertarians, who want to just have freedom, freedom, freedom. Uh, but I think that's an example of justice. It's loving people and by giving certain people what they deserve. Third is the persecution of believers around the world. Christians are being targeted, imprisoned, beaten, raped, hanged, crucified, and bombed for claiming Jesus as Lord, and our pursuit of justice should include the millions of Christians imprisoned or executed around the globe. And a fourth is socialism. I'm quoting him here. The quest to achieve economic equality between the rich and the poor through communist and socialist policies has resulted in more than 100 million casualties in the 20th century alone and our pursuit of justice should include the desperately oppressed victims of far-left economic systems. So that's one way that I would update this article, is just be more specific on those sorts of things. I just was rereading it this morning and thinking, uh, someone could read this and get the wrong impression of what, we're, what we think are justice issues. Uh, we write, in our political context, people on the right and left tend to emphasize different aspects of the government's work of dispensing justice, uh, Christians passionately believe that their political convictions promote justice. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's all true, and this can come out in uh, how you, you, ex, you know, express your view on immigration or a tax rate or political alliances or political parties. Again, I, I, I drafted this in 2019, and it was at a time in my church context where we're just trying to hang together. It ended up blowing up in 2021. Uh, not blowing up. It ended up splintering a little bit, and the Lord helped us, and we're, we're good. Uh, But there was some turbulence over these matters, and Jonathan Lehman and I wrote this back in 2019, 2020. Uh, Others wonder if one or both of the major parties have become off-limits for Christians, like the situation with the Nazi party. We don't think that a particular political party is a perfect fit for a Christian. If we did, then party thinking would probably be subverting our Christianity, but we don't believe in moral equivalency. Some parties are better than others, and some injustices are worse than others. So we're really careful not to use the term Republican or Democrat in, in talking about that. But looking back, I think we could have said more. Uh, back then I would have said, you know, do you think it's wrong for a Christian to vote Democrat at the level of president, governor, uh, you know, Congress? And I would have said, I think it's unwise at best, maybe sinful. And now four years later, given the official platform, I would not encourage any Christian to do that. They don't have to vote Republican. Like I, I see one, I see two parties, and they 're both bad, and one 's really bad so it 's like do you want to drive your car off the cliff at one hundred miles an hour or five miles an hour uh, that 's how i 'm seeing it so I'd, i would not I would not uh, encourage anyone to vote for a party that is celebrating trans mutilation and that 's not a word did it again uh, transgender mutilation and uh, uh, and abortion and, and such matters so they're not morally equivalent issues. but So I just want to be more clear about that even as I speak today. That's one thing I do differently. Uh, our second question is, Why must Eric, how are we doing on time? I can go for another hour. For another 20, minutes. 20 minutes? Okay, make sure we have time for Q&A here too. Uh, our second question is, why must Christians agree to disagree over jagged line political issues? Have you heard that term before? Straight line, jagged line? So a straight line issue is, you've got a straight line from a biblical text to a policy application, like don't murder, don't murder the babies. Right? that's my, my daughters understand that one. Uh, a jagged line one is you've got a multi-step process from a biblical or theological principle to a political position, like what should the tax rate be? I've got, an, I've got an opinion on that, but it's nowhere near as dogmatic as my conviction about abortion. I might share it with you, my opinion about the tax rate, but I'm not going to preach it with the same dogmatism as I would abortion. So one's a straight, straight line, one's a jagged line. Do you understand the distinction? Everybody? Okay. So then we go on after explaining what those are. We, 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 we say Christians need to respect fellow Christians who have differently calibrated consciences on jagged line issues. So my view of, of a church membership should be we want as much as possible anyone who's a member of Christ church to be a member of this church, um, and in our church, with the exception of and, and baptized as a believer. Uh, but we just, we just, we won't, we, we're Calvinists as pastors, but we let Arminians be members. Uh, we're complementarian, uh, biblical patriarchy. Uh, we have members who are egalitarians. Uh, so we're, we don't insist on the exact same doctrinal commitments among our members. And I did say the same for politics. You don't have to agree with all of our instincts and positions and convictions on politics to be a member we want to be able to celebrate we're all in Christ. We want to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We want a, a big, as big a tent as, as wise and feasible. So that I still, I still believe that, uh, that we want to uh, respect fellow Christians who have differently calibrated consciences on those kind of issues. And we also want to insist that Christians agree on straight line issues and have freedom to disagree on jagged line issues. Otherwise, we're misrepresenting Christ to non-Christians. Like, if we speak of the Christian policy, like, so if you take a different position, it's no, you're no longer... I want to be careful about that. So speak really carefully when you say this is the Christian view as opposed to a Christian view. All right, and finally, last question is, how must Christians who disagree over jagged line political issues agree to disagree? And we say by acknowledging leeway on jagged line political issues, that's still true and by uniting to accomplish the mission Christ gave the church. Amen. The Great Commission is the church's mission. Uh, And three, by prioritizing loving others over convincing them that your convictions about jagged line political issues are right. So all that's true, uh, but where I've become more uh, convictional, more of a backbone over the last four years, is to express certain convictions with uh, more tying the authority of God's word to to how I got to that conviction. Um, So I'm much more likely in a sermon to preach against sexual ethics of our culture explicitly than I would before. Um, so what I mean by that is um, I'll bring up the LGBT ideology that is just everywhere in our culture. It's in the sports. It's in the schools. It's in the higher institutions. It's in the government. It's in the military. It's, just, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And, and you might not think so, but it is actually in the air that your church people are breathing, including the young people. So every opportunity I have, I want to uh, be like Puddleglum and take my foot and stamp out the fire so that everyone smells burnt March wiggle and comes back to their senses and are not enchanted by the witch's uh, enchantments. Uh, I think that's, that's a good role for a pastor to have. And then if that's connected to political issues, so be it. If that, if that affects how you're going to vote and how you're going to uh, uh, look at, uh, at divisive issues, so be it. Uh, so I, I guess I'm a little more fiery than I was four years ago uh, on how I think about these matters. Okay, uh, I've got one more thing I can talk about in our remaining time, let me pause right there. That was enough to, uh, to cause you to ask some kind of questions or make comments, but let me pause there. Questions or comments on that bit? Yep, Oh, where are we going? Yes, sir. I don't know about how accurate your statistics are there. So I can't, I'm not saying they're wrong, but I just can't speak to that. But let's assume they're right in my answer, because I, I, I don't know the studies there. I'm using numbers loosely, but okay. generally, speaking. So um, I want to be really careful not to play the identity politics game that the culture plays, which is how you can't speak to women issues unless you're a woman. You can't speak to ethnic issues unless you're black, or at least non-white. You can't speak to this unless you're that. I reject all of that. I have I'm a pastor, I'm a professor, and I know the Bible, and I can speak to anything if I have the authority of Scripture behind me. So just stop playing those games. Let's put that on the table and just say, what does the Scripture say? Uh, so thank you. Uh, so, so as I think this kind through this kind of issue, I'd say, well, what is true? What most honors the Lord? Where do our thinking processes need to adjust to be in line with Scripture? So and this can go for any group uh, it's not so you you you, you mentioned uh, how black churches are historically associated with Democrats. You could say how white churches are historically associated with evil kinds of politicians who happen to be Republican. This can go either way so I, I'm not trying to pick on one, but in this case, I'd say uh, what the Bible says about murder is across the board clear. this is an example of supporting that, and that 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 ought not be and someone. Okay, now I'm going to deviate from Bible more to talk about my political theory. Personal view is is that African-American families in America were actually really strong in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and it was with Lyndon B. Johnson's civil rights uh, laws he enacted uh, with the welfare state that resulted in incentives for the family to disintegrate. Uh, So I think that this is a case where the government actually made the problem way worse, and they've been trying to solve it by proliferating uh, the problem with further problems. So it's a a complicated topic, and when I'm talking to my my black brothers and sisters, I would want to appeal to them to scripture, to align their consciences with scripture, Uh, not try to get them to vote Republican. Again, I'm not a shill for the Republican Party by any means, but I'd, I'd ask questions about, do you want to align your support for a party that has this as not just a plank in the platform, but a central plank? A necessary plank, a plank that they celebrate as like their 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 right, their sacrificial right, uh, R I T E. Now, some of you brothers are pastors, and you could speak to this with more uh, personal perspectives. I'm happy to hear if you want to disagree with me or share your perspective. Is everyone afraid to talk about this? All right, go ahead, Will. Yeah. In black Christians, black Christians. All right. Any other questions or comments on what is shared about conscience politics in the church? All right. One more short thing. That's okay, Eric. Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, winsomeness and how this relates to everything we just mentioned. Have you heard debates about winsomeness over the last two years? A few of you. Uh, the winsomeness wars. Yeah. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Some of you uh, just kind of refresh what, what's been happening. There's been a debate about whether winsomeness is a good thing. And you're like, what's wrong with winsomeness? You know, winsomeness is just uh, winning some. Win some. It's trying to win some to your view. Who, who doesn't want to be winsome? And Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is an epitome of this, when he is wanting to win more people to Christ. So it's Jews. Whether it's those outside the law, he's all things, all people, so that by all means he might win some. So what could possibly be wrong with winsomeness? And I'd I'd say, well, it depends on what you mean by winsome. If you mean what Paul meant, absolutely, that's wonderful. Uh, But you have to ask, what people in particular do I want to think I'm winsome, and why? And you have to ask, what people do I not care as much or at all whether they think I'm winsome? and why? And then you yes, ask, well, do I tend to win some people on my theological or political left, or my theological or political right, and deplore the others? And whose approval am I, am I, am I seeking? And whose disapproval do I view as a, a badge of honor? And I think this is the key question. Am I shifting from God-honoring winsomeness to a sinful, people-pleasing? So that's, that's where, I, where, or where winsomeness can become sinful, when it's people-pleasing. Uh, First Corinthians, excuse me, Romans 15.2, I think is an example of that, sinful people-pleasing. So part of this debate is regarding Tim Keller. Uh, He's with the Lord now, but this debate really kicked off, or at least hit a nerve, when James Wood, a friend of mine, who's a professor, wrote an article in 2022 in which he suggested very respectfully, I mean, his dog's name is is Keller. He loves Keller. Now, he suggested respectfully that evangelical uh, pastor Tim Keller quote, maybe subconsciously thinks about politics through the lens of evangelism in the sense of making sure that political judgments don't prevent people in today's world from coming to Christ. So rather than identifying Christianity with the left or the right, what Keller did was argue for a third way and this winsome strategy tends to appease those to your left and create distance from the deplorables like the, those people in flyover country and then pietistically stay above the fray of complex social and political issues. Have you heard of Aaron Wren's diagnosis of this, where he calls uh, positive world, neutral world, negative world. Okay, so I think that analysis is really, really helpful, where uh, there was a positive world in uh, in the culture's view of Christianity, which became a neutral world, and it's now shifted to a negative world. So being a Christian used to have some cultural cachet, uh, uh, some value to you publicly in in the civil area arena, and then it was more neutral, and now it's actually a net loss for you if you're a Christian in the public sphere. Okay, so um, Wood explains that a concern for the church's public witness lets the culture set the terms for how we engage because we fear that others might perceive us negatively. And that was a controversy in 2022 which just highlighted the different strategies some people have. And what I've done uh, is take Kevin DeYoung's four-part taxonomy that he came out with in March 2022 and then added winsomeness to those four categories. This, this is an article that you should read if you haven't. It's called Why Reformed Evangelicalism Has Splintered. It was, excuse me, March 2021. Uh, it's on the Gospel Coalition's website. And Kevin DeYoung proposed four approaches to race, politics, and gender. Do you guys remember this article? Anybody? Nobody? <laughs> One of you? Okay. Super, super helpful and insightful. Um, and he didn't name names in that, but right before it came out, a week before it came out, there was a uh, a private meeting of about 13 of us. We met in Minneapolis, and he proposed this article there. And we all were naming the names in that meeting. So here's, if I were to look back and name names for the different views, here's some examples. So for view one, he calls it contrite. I would include guys like the Anna Buile, Russell Moore, David French. Uh, for view two, he calls compassionate. I'd include Tim Keller, David Platt, Julius Kim, a lot of the TGC guys. For the third view, careful. So DeYoung would be here, Al Mohler, Denny Burke, and fourth would be Courageous, John MacArthur, Doug Wilson, Votie Bauckham, Owen Stram. Does that give you a sense of the different different views, if you know these names? Okay, some of you, if you don't know those names, you're, you're lost right now. But uh, basically, what the Young does in that article is describe uh, how those four views uh, think of ten different issues. And they just tend to line up. And this illustrates a principle that Thomas Sowell has illustrated many times in his books, which is you can take a list of, like, 20 political issues... And they seem to be disconnected. But for whatever reason, whole groups tend to have the same views on those issues. And the reason for that is there's a philosophy that undergirds your approach to how you look at life. And these four views are are getting at that. And what I've done is, is show how those four views think about winsomeness. So for that first view, contrite, winsomeness is a strategy to be attractive to the left by sympathetically listening to their perspectives and by unmasking and denouncing the right and calling out the church's sins. This is what David French does every Sunday. I stopped reading that several years ago because I couldn't take it anymore. So um, think when I say left and right, by the way, uh, when I say left, think like large blue cities that disproportionately influence the culture with progressive ideologies that are politically correct. And When I say right, think of small red towns and flyover country that more highly value tradition. Because that's that's the first few seconds, compassionate. So winsomeness is a strategy to be attractive to both the left and the right, but especially the left, by not being culture warriors, but instead by being thoughtful and kind. And this is a really popular approach. Uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung argues in an essay that he writes on Tim Keller, he says in 2023, even the most outward facing church is going to face hostility, not of its own making. I fear that anxious evangelicals hope that if they can just be grace-centered enough, contextualized enough, do enough to serve the community, and make clear that they're not Republicans, then unbelievers will turn to Christ. <laughs> of course, Keller never makes such an outlandish claim, but when we emphasize the church's failure to adapt to a changing world, we can mislead the biblical truth that those who hated Jesus will hate his followers. We can miss the biblical truth and, and that the God of the sage is blind to the minds of unbelievers. So this view operates like we're still functionally in a neutral world. Third view, careful, winsomeness is a strategy to be attractive to both the left and the right by being thoughtful and kind, especially in personal relationships, and at the same time recognizes we live in a negative world so we can't be nice enough to appease those who think that our moral convictions are evil. So we've got to correct error, engage the culture war on certain issues like abortion and transgenderism. And in the fourth view, courageous, winsomeness is a strategy to be attractive, especially to the right, as well as those on the left who become disaffected by boldly speaking the truth and standing firm. We shouldn't be sinfully harsh, but neither should we worry about offending people who support murdering unborn babies and mutilating children in the Orwellian name of reproductive freedom and gender-affirming care. So I, f- I find this, that spectrum helpful to think through. I'm more in my world is views three and four. Uh, I've got a lot of friends in the tube, uh, but I've I've just noticed that Views 1 and 2 are more concerned with building bridges. Views 3 and 4 are more concerned with building walls. That seems to be their, their tendencies. Um, and that that describes a big difference between a, a, a Tim Keller and a Kevin DeYoung, for example. How are we doing on time? OK, because I've got like another hour in me. All right. I'll, we can talk later. All right. Yep. so much. Uh, we're gonna take about a five, seven minute break and we'll come back in and Lucas will speak. Uh, there's food out there, there's restrooms out there. My guess is there's gonna be a line for the restrooms. There's also two kind of single stall bathrooms that go through that door right there. So there's five basically so back there. Uh, so help yourselves to those and we'll get started roughly ten forty five.